The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Stephen Main, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, shareholder advocate and City of Manningham councillor. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are the Money Cafe. Now, James, to quote Jason Clare, when uh, Albo got COVID last year, (laughs) well, the boss has got the bug, so you've got me. Well. And that's what's happened. Jason, uh, Alan's got the bug, COVID. I'm not sure if this is his... uh... Maybe his second time around the block, but uh, as they say, there's a bit of it around. So uh, ho- hopefully he's resting up and uh, he's back on deck soonest. Well, I think it's going to be a bumper Saturday uh, weekend review because he's 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 lying low, but he's gonna he's gonna step up for the weekend wrap. Oh. So uh, we can all look forward to okay. that. Okay, very good. Now um, we probably should get into it. So it's, it, today, I think, is the busiest day. This is the Thursday of the res, of the reporting season. We've got uh, twenty results listed on the Comsec uh, website, but we probably should start with CBA yesterday, given they've got the eight hundred and seventy four thousand uh, retail shareholders who are hanging on every word. What did you make of it? I thought it was a pretty good result, actually. Uh, you know, this is a very very well run bank, uh, record profit. Um, yes, the shares were sold off uh, and there were some concerns about net interest margins, which is a sort of key guide to profitability inside a bank. Uh, but I think that you need to see that in the context of it's very strong buying of the banks since the start of the year. I think uh, Combank was up 8% coming year to date coming into yesterday's result. And that's a lot of people getting in before they announce a big fat dividend and a share buyback. Uh, and some of those people have uh, exited stage left yesterday. Yes. Um, to, to be expected. But uh, the, the bit I found most interesting, Stephen, this bank, it, it, despite its size, easily the biggest in Australia, despite the maturity of the market, they managed to add a record 700,000 transaction accounts in the December half. Now, that is... That is that's reasonable going for a, a ship of this size. Yes, well, they've got now what forty percent of Australian payment flows are now uh, coming through the, the CBA. So just the size of it is phenomenal. I mean, you're right; it was priced to perfection. It peaked at 111 on February three, but still losing 12 billion dollars of market value in one day after declaring a profit of 5.2 billion. Uh, I don't think I can recall that happening before. But uh, yeah, look. Yeah. The flow price was five forty. The stock's now at one hundred and three. Uh, shareholders uh, <laughs> have had a pretty good run, haven't they? So, uh, well, well, uh, Stephen, uh, I wonder. I wonder if Matt Common, the chief executive, would be that worried about having his shares fall on the day. I wonder. Oh, he he, he needs that politically because yeah, I mean, exactly. if he'd come out and if he'd come out and announced a, a record profit and the shares had gone up to a record high. He would have got smashed about political intervention, gouging, you, you know, your, your, your net interest margins up 23 basis points to 210. That share price tumble was politically very convenient. Yeah, yeah. and I think, uh, but I think CBA salted the, the mine a little bit because they, they came out and they were very, very specific. Oh, look at our margins. They're not, 
you know, okay, they peaked in October, but they've been under pressure since then. That Common's quite astute at managing the, the, the sort of political zeitgeist, and I think he was keen to both balance talking up the bank and talking down the result yesterday. He did a pretty good job. Yeah, no, I agree. And a couple of stats that jumped out at me. I had to listen to the 83-minute conference call yesterday where 12 all-male analysts uh, peppered in with questions. Liquids, so cash liquids are at $193 billion at December 31. That is just incredibly yeah. strong position. You know, so they can throw in a, a, you know, a massive dividend plus an extra billion on the buyback. Don't forget they've still got this $51 billion reserve bank loan. Uh, at 0.1%, which is repayable in 16 months. And I also thought it was amazing they said that the CBA alone has got $95 billion of fixed loans coming off onto variable this year, oh. calendar this year. And the other line that jumped out at me was he mentioned that there's a lot more scams going around and that the, that the ACCC had said there'd been $2 billion in scams in 2021. And his quote was, and it's more than doubled each year since then. Yeah. So he's talking $5 billion a year in scams that people are being hit in Australia. That was pretty scary too, I thought. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I think all the banks are, are, are doing things about this. CBA yesterday talked about a, a bit of technology that um, essentially uses uh, voice recognition to, to tell whether a call's genuine or not. So Nab mm. has got some new stuff out in the market. So clearly the banks are responding to a big problem. So if you get an email from your bank, check it four times before you do anything. Absolutely right. Now, uh, in terms of the results season more broadly, um, uh, I mean, I guess we could talk about today. You, you're interviewing five CEOs today. This is Thursday the, with the 20 different results coming yeah, out. Which uh, which five are you doing? Uh, Telstra, uh, AMP, Magellan, ASX, and uh, we'll see if I can uh, get to talk to NAB's boss. They've got a quarterly coming out today. So, Okay, and then you're not even going to get into Goodman Group or Newcrest or Origin or Sonic Healthcare. I mean, it's just it's just ridiculous. Oh, you know, you've got to say, Stephen, it's it, it for, for a journalist who's trying to give all these companies. You know, you mentioned all the ones I'm not going to get to today. Well, we'd love to get across these companies. My plea to the uh, investor relations teams of Australia. You've got all month. Spread your results out. You don't all need to go on the Wednesday and Thursday of, of the, the big two weeks. Well, Give us a hand. Well, this is, the, this is the bizarre thing. There's only 13 on the four Fridays yeah. of the season, yeah. but there's 20 today and there's 20 next Thursday. So why don't they like Fridays and what's this obsession with Thursdays? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, it's... M Mondays are light. Tuesdays are relatively light. I mean... Guys, if you want if you want investors to be able to digest your results with any detail, spread them out. Give us a hand. Yeah, yeah, and and it's funny. The AGMs is the same. Where yeah. um, very few have them on Monday, and that's mainly because you've got to wrangle your proxies over the weekend because proxy voting finishes forty eight hours beforehand. But very few have them on Friday either. I don't understand this. This Friday is the busiest day of the week, except for uh, ASX. Uh, AGMs and and company reports. This uh, maybe it's the old thing about no one reads the Saturday papers or something. But I, that's the thing I don't understand is is why don't things happen on Friday in corporate Australia? Not sure. So, uh, not sure. That's a. Uh, I'm with you. I'm with you on this. Yeah. Now I wanted to mention um, a couple of gambling issues. Uh, the Star Entertainment. I, I, I see they're getting absolutely pressured by you know the investment banks to do a $500 million capital raising because, you know, their stock price is tanked from, 
more than $6 to $1.47. I actually reckon they should hold the line and not do a capital raising because the New South Wales government is outrageously proposing to introduce a massive new tax. They've got massive new fines coming. I reckon they should plead poor and say we're breaching our covenants to minimise the slugging they're going to cop from both Queensland and New South Wales state governments. Yes, well, that that is essentially what they've done this week, uh, Stephen. They've basically sort of tried to tell the the New South Wales government, hey, if you bring in this new higher gambling uh, duty, then we're going to have to slash our our workforce and and change the business. But uh, I think the matter is too pressing now, Stephen, and... Uh, the the fall the size of the falls this week you know they've lost thirty percent of their market cap in a week that just puts too yeah. much strain on the balance sheet that yeah, I, I take yeah, the point the, about crying poor but you've got to reassure your investors the owners that you can make this make it through yeah well I mean normally I would agree with that but the short sellers are piling on as well so you know I, I just think this time they should just hold the line and say and dare their banks to actually put them under because I don't think the banks will and the governments will ultimately save them because they're basically in joint venture with the two state governments. Yeah. I reckon they should do what Seven West did. Seven West Media has now gone 11 halves in a row without paying a dividend and they've reduced their debt down from $600 million to $186 million. Just say, no dividends, we're toughing it out, all cash flow goes to reducing debt and we're not going to do an emergency raising because whenever you do an emergency raising, it's retail shareholders who get shafted because they don't take up their rights, they get diluted, and uh, the 70,000 retail shareholders in Star Entertainment who will get dudded if this discounted emergency raising gets done. But Stephen, why didn't they raise when they came out and issued a profit uh, profit warning, basically, uh, on, on Monday? Why didn't they raise then? By, by, by allowing this speculation to build, No, there's no incentive for anyone to buy shares in Star at the moment because you, well, you know you're going to get them cheaper in the raising. I don't understand no, why it's, they didn't halt and raise immediately. Because the New South Wales government has announced an outrageous $364 million tax grab over three years, which is a ridiculous, ridiculous impost. And why should they raise all this money to pay a ridiculous new tax, which is still up in the air with the election and with uh, Labor's not locked into it? And there's great political uncertainty. So don't create a pile of money that then governments can just come in and grab off you. Yeah, that's what I reckon. That's what I reckon is their tactic. Well, uh, it's it's backfired badly because they've 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 hurt in the short term. Yes. Yeah, they've hurt their retail shareholders. Their their long suffering retail shareholders have been bad. Well, it, this week. Indeed, indeed. So uh, now we should get on to Glenn Stevens. Yeah, well, um, Phil Lowe, you mean? Sorry, sorry, Phil Lowe. Yes, yes. yes. Not uh, not the Macquarie chair. Yeah, yes. Phil Lowe. What did you? Uh, I mean, what did you make of his? Uh, 90 minutes or thereabouts yesterday uh, in front of the pollies. Oh, look, I mean, I thought he he, he, he made lots of good points. Uh, you know, you just keep coming back. This is a hugely smart guy, but he's not very street smart. I mean, I, I just don't understand why he... I don't mind him going to give a briefing at Baron Joey or, or talk to the guys at Baron Joey. You want, your, you want the... Um, RBA governor to be out and about, but that's that's fine. But mix that with you know plenty of public communications, and and make it clear that that's what you're doing. You know, don't don't. I just think he's got a bit of a tin ear at the moment, Phil. He's under pressure, and and 
you don't need to be doing this sort of thing. I mean, if you want to go and chat to some people, go and, you know, organise some public forums and, 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 and chat to the public and find out how people in mortgage belts are going, you know. Well, he did say yesterday that he went and visited the, the CEO of ACOS and talked to financial counsellors in Surrey Hills, so he was the man of the people uh, in one of his uh, comments yesterday. Yes. But uh, it's a bit of a pile-on, though, isn't it? Oh, I mean, totally, uh, yeah. yeah, so, and, and you know, yeah, good story for the Fin Review to find out about the Baron Joey thing. But, uh, look, it's open season. I was disappointed the way he was trying to hide behind the board. I mean, it was almost ten times yesterday when he was stressing that, you know, it was a, wasn't just me, it was a board decision. What that doesn't cover is that he would have made a recommendation. He's, he's the executive chairman. He's the guru. Yeah. He's got a bunch of non-executive directors sitting there. He, whatever he recommended to the board, the board would have just said, yes, yes, boss, you know, you guys are the gurus, to then sit back and say, oh, it wasn't my decision. It was the board's decision. I mean, unless he's going to come out and say, I recommended we freeze and the board rolled me and said raise, <laughs> then hiding behind the board is, is, is rubbish. Yeah, uh, I think you're right. Uh, there's, no, there's no chance he's, he's there in October, is there, Stephen? No, no, and I, I was glad he changed his language yesterday where he previously has been saying he might be up for another another go. Now he's just promising to serve his full term, and that's only September. So uh, unlike uh, McFarlane and Glenn Stevens, his two predecessors, he's not going to get the seven years plus three to have a nice round decade in charge. And uh, we've got the very difficult decision of who succeeds him, which is not clear-cut, as John Kehoe wrote in an excellent piece in the Fin Review this week. It's not easy to find the next person to uh, take on this uh, hot seat. No, and I thought John, uh, I agree, it was a really good piece, and I thought he made a great point there that who do you want in this job? Do you want someone who's a trained economist, years of looking at uh, this sort of stuff, um, lots of experience in central banking, or do you want some sort of politician who is is liable to move to the whims of, uh, of the moment? I mean... Nick McKim from the Greens calling for Lowe to be summarily sacked and Jim Chalmers to uh, take charge to take charge and, and cancel the rate rise. I mean, honestly. Yeah, that, yeah it's ridiculous. I think they should. I mean, we've got the renovators delight, as Alan calls it. We've got the review coming in at uh, the end of March. I actually would prefer a board full of econ economist experts rather than your, uh, than your typical public company, you know, one accountant, one lawyer. Um, yeah, I, I think a panel of experts would make would make more sense. Yeah. Um, but uh, look at when you look at the Fed, Stephen, they're not infallible either. <laughs> no, no, that's right. Well, the Fed, uh, yeah, correct. So um, I do like the way the Fed is uh, is is trying to ease off quantitative uh, easing, so doing the opposite to the tune of a trillion dollars uh, this financial year, which is far more aggressive than the winding back that the Reserve Bank is doing. Because, I mean, Matt Common did say yesterday that money supply is still expanding in Australia, where it's contracting in the US. Yeah, yeah, no, it was a yeah, good point. Now, I wanted to, um, just back to the reporting season, I noticed in your little write-up of uh, the seven-group result yesterday, you described Ryan Stokes as, quote, one of Australia's best chief executives. Now, I don't know if you ran that past the, the nine CEO, Mike Sneesby, your boss, <laughs> uh, talking about the opposition like that. But uh, I do agree he's probably the best child of a billionaire CEO since the Lowy boys retired from Westfield. Mm. Um, Peter Wilson at Reese, uh, he's also a son of a billionaire, has done a great job as well. 
But um, yeah, what do you think? You know, we're going to talk about our favourite CEOs of all time. Why do you think Ryan Stokes is so good? I just think uh, I think he's very thoughtful um, about uh, how they drive those businesses, uh, and I think it's interesting the way he's latched on to some really big trends uh, like resources infrastructure, energy, and and built this sort of conglomerate around that. Running a conglomerate uh, like that is fraught with danger. Often you have, you know, two or three of the engines misfiring where you, where you, you want them firing all at the same time. Stokes seems to have an ability to get, you know, two or three going really strongly at one time. I, I, I don't know. I think he's an impressive guy, um, very level-headed, sort of quite – Humble, as you said, yeah. not, not all billionaire sons are like that. I, I, I think he's, uh, I think he's done a good job. Yeah, look, I agree. I mean, he is quite calm. I remember one time Kerry Stokes, he, he's the only bloke who's ever called security on me at an AGM right. and, uh, to, to sort of physically take the microphone off me. It was getting pretty willing. And afterwards, Ryan came up, very polite, calm, just smoothing over the situation. So yeah. I, he's very well adjusted. Yes, uh, he's got an excellent upside kick there in Richard Richards at Seven yeah. Group. Yeah. Um, but uh, but look, it's in our, our favourite CEOs. You, you, the other day, you wrote a strong piece about Scott Charlton and uh, exiting Transurban and Paul Perot yes. exiting CSL, and they've both done it more than a decade. Yeah. And I, I would have both of them in my top ten all time um, CEOs, I reckon. And uh, tell us why you like them both. Oh, Charlton! Charlton, I think, has done a, a good job of. Um you know, protecting a, a, a big monopoly. And, and, you know, yes, he's got lots of – he start his starting position's really good. You know, lots of private capital, low rates, uh, as government's desperate to recycle assets to fund their um, their budgets. But <laughs> but I think he's, he's, he's made he's – take, he's t- make, taken maximum advantage out of that, uh, the, the way yeah. he's um, used unsolicited proposals to build out the concession lives – are taking taking the company Transurban global or to a certain extent, and yeah. and managed to bring in these big partners like the super funds in Australia and Canada. It, it, it's yeah. a pretty good package, I reckon. He set up and and Perot, yeah, I agree. Perot, I just love the way the guy thinks long term. You know, you sort of go to these analyst briefings and you listen in every six months. And you sort of get the sense, you get the sense with uh, Shamara with Micro at Macquarie too. Yeah, they're a bit interested, but they're really trying to think five or ten years in advance. And, and I think yeah. that's what makes these big companies get bigger is, is when you've got a CEO who can do the execution of the near term well, but their, their, their real passion is that long term. Yeah, well, I, I mean, Shamara, I think the secret to Macquarie has, has been having three long term in-house CEOs in a row, so Alan Moss, Nicholas Moore, and then Shamara. Yeah. Um, and Scott Charlton, you know, Transurban's only ever had three CEOs as well. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, uh, 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 so I think there's something, West Farmers, you know, not you know, lots of long-term CEOs. Paul O'Malley's another favourite of mine. He was uh, at Blue Scope for, you know, a, a decade or thereabouts. Um, but, but overall, the all-time number one for mine is is still has to be Brian McNamee for his 23 years at CEO at CSL leading into the Perot period when he left in um, 2013, he'd grown it to 28 billion. Um, 
And then I also love Catherine Livingstone. I think she's done the best job of, of being an excellent CEO and an excellent chair. Yep. So she did a great year for a great job for six years at Cochlear, and then she was a tremendous stabilizing Telstra chair and then a stabilizing CBA chair. Yeah, yeah. And I think Matt Commons, uh, you know, he, he's right up there at the moment. Um, if he's not at the top of the pole, he's very close. And well, it, you know, I guess we'll have to see the the end of his tenure to see where he sits in terms of all timers. But uh, he's, I think he's the best big four bank CEO I've seen. Yeah. So, uh, and I love the fact that he's been there a long time. I mean, he was the sort of the, the bloke who built Comsec, which is a magnificent you know uh, franchise in its own right. Yeah. Yeah. No, good point. So, um, and then uh, and then on the other one is Qantas, Alan Joyce. I mean, I look at Scott Charlton. It's pretty easy sitting back and clipping the ticket on tolls. Yes. It's a lot harder, you know, running a, a global airline like Qantas or even something as complex as CSL. So, um, yeah, I think Joyce, just for the toughness of it, and again with Qantas, lots of long-serving CEOs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, James Strong, Jeff Dixon, uh, Alan Joyce, you know, well over 20 years combined. Yeah, something to be said for that uh, institutional knowledge, isn't there? Now, we should get on some questions. So, um Let's start off with uh, with David, who is basically, if I can summarise, we've got a few war and peace questions this, this session, James, so we might end up doing some summarising. But David's basically saying that supply constraints have, have, have been contained and everything's to blame from MMT, from all the money printing. And um, do we agree that all this global inflation is basically down to excessive, crazy uh, money printing by central banks? I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's overly helped the money printing, but um, when you look back at it, it, it's hard to know what else they could have done in that, that that pandemic moment. I mean, yes, Australia went over the top probably with the size and scale and the lack of rigor around JobKeeper, um, but the need for those programs was pretty big. Uh, so I, you know, I, I'm not sure what the alternative is. I do find it interesting with MMT, Stephen. And, and look, my my understanding of it wasn't amazing, but I, I, I was led to understand that when inflation rises, that's the time you you jack taxes up um, to take the edge off inflation. But yeah, fiscal policy. Yes, we, we haven't. We, I, I'm not hearing a lot of MMTs call for that at the moment. Um, or, or maybe, no, no, maybe that's we're true. just not talking. The media is not talking to them in the right way. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I still think it was you know like the the the, the US. Set, Federal Reserve, the, the balance sheet got to $9 trillion, thanks to all that money printing since the GFC. And the fact that we basically printed $281 billion between November 2020 and February 2022, uh, printing money and buying bonds, and then we lent the banks $188 billion, you know, at, at, at basically zero. I, I think we did flood the system with too much cash, yeah. and I do think that contributed to so the, the housing bubble in particular when combined with crazy low interest rates. So... I agree. I think the the coalition just went too too hard for too long on that, and the Reserve Bank on that whole stimulus, money printing, uh, job keeper piece. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Mitchell asks, why did the RBA not raise or at least put a hold on the cash rate when it was at two percent? I feel as though anything below two percent is asking for trouble. Housings were still booming, and people were talking about a bubble back then. So why the need to keep dropping? Is Japan is the Japan economy the way of the future? Well, I, mean, I agree. We, we we probably went too too low for too long, and then we had the the infamous promise of staying at <laughs> staying at record lows till twenty twenty four. So, 
yeah, I, I think it's there's, there's probably a few people who are arguing with that now is that uh, it just got ridiculous. And that housing bubble and that, that surge in household borrowing, people entering the market, you know, albeit a lot of them at fixed rates, uh, was just too much stimulus. And yes, you know, but, but everyone seemed to make that mistake because inflation is, is, is hitting all over the world. It's not just an Australian phenomenon. Well, but uh, the flip side of that, Stephen, is we've got short memories, don't we? Because it's 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 like two years ago when all of Phil Lowe's speeches were about how do we get inflation up? How do we get wages up? There's been no wage growth for a decade. So I think we, we've got short memories. It, you know, r- rates were that low because there was no inflation and, and at, at various times we needed to stimulate the economy. I mean, uh, I, I, I take Mitchell's point. But I think there's a bit of hindsight, there's a bit of recency bias and hindsight coming into play here. Yeah, I thought uh, Rob Scott at West Farmers was interesting yesterday, where he's, he's saying that the the foreign inputs on inflation are largely falling away. You know, yeah. container prices and oil and stuff, and he sees the threats as being uh, domestic uh, industrial relations changes pushing up labour costs, uh, energy costs, and transport costs. Yeah, I and mean, so those um, things are going to be know, much stickier than we think. So that's and we need and, and we need to clean up our act on that in terms of uh, Australia being an ex- extremely expensive place to live yeah. globally, and um, you know some federal policies are making it worse. Yeah, yeah. You want to do Tony? Uh, Tony yeah. The big news is all about inflation, but what is the real figure? And then we get a nice long explanation from Tony where he's basically complaining that his insurance premium has gone up 25% on his very rarely driven Corolla (laughs) from $434 to $545, and he's getting stuck in the Amy, which is owned by Suncor, about this and basically challenging whether the real inflation rate is actually 7.8%. When this little anecdote is, he's copped a twenty-five percent increase in his insurance premium. Yeah. So can we trust seven point eight percent, James? Is it the real figure? Well, uh, I think we could trust it. Uh, I, I'm not too concerned about that. I think Tony's got a very specific problem here. Actually, we've all got this, and he, and it is a good point. I, I know, you know, it's dangerous to pick one thing and say, oh, you know, inflation's much worse. Insur- insurance is a really interesting area. Insurance costs aren't just rising because of inflation, you know. They're rising of bit because we're having a lot more natural disasters and the reinsurance companies, those are the companies that provide insurers with insurance, they're increasingly saying we're not so keen on Australia anymore um, and, and they're jacking up their prices. So we're getting a bit of a double whammy in insurance. We're getting the inflation from supply chain, labour, car parts, and then we're getting the inflation from higher reinsurance costs. But it is an interesting one because insurance is one of those non-discretionary items. Most people will not give up their insurance. So it's one we are going to feel for a while to come, I reckon. And if Tony's only paying 545 for his insurance for his car, he's doing quite well. And I'd just like to, to make a comment about AMA, which is Australia's biggest listed panel beater. Yeah. You know, you've got to feel sorry for them. Their shares have gone from $1.40 in 2019 to down 21 cents. So the panel beaters of Australia have got to get fed. They've got to get paid. Well, I was out there paying 2800 to AMA the other day when I stacked uh, one of our cars. <laughs> so um, just think about the battlers, you know, in the car repair industry uh, who have to deal with those big insurers. And uh, AMA has been a disaster for shareholders and they're Australia's biggest panel beater. So they're certainly not ripping anybody off. You're a kind soul, Stephen. Um, 
Now, John, John wants an update on what's happening with the Origin Energy uh, takeover with Brookfield and EIG. And, of course, we've got the Origin Energy earnings out later today. Yep. So I, I, um, I don't expect much of an update. The, the negotiations are still going on. There's a lot of talk that Brookfield and EIG might look to reduce the price from $9 a share. Uh, but the, the delay here is when we don't have a lot of details on how this gas price cap is going to work and we probably won't get them till March. So until we have some more clarity there, it's hard for EIG, which is buying the APLNG asset inside Origin, it's hard for them to come to a, a price. So be patient. I think the, the deal's not dead, um, but it's it's dragging on and, and time is the enemy of mergers and acquisitions. So it is very, very rare to have a named price and then to get a reduced figure. I mean, maybe we had it with Link, uh, but it's very rare. I wouldn't be surprised if this bid fails, if Brookfield and EIG get spooked by the $12 gigajoule price plus the coming gas code and and walk away. And, and frankly, I'm a bit troubled by the idea of Brookfield, which is just ridiculously large. I mean, they bought Osnet. They're just too big. Them snapping up... Uh, the domestic uh, retail operations of, of Origin and then uh, the, the Gladstone LNG thing going offshore foreign-owned. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just not a fan of that. And uh, at $18.4 billion enterprise value, it's a big public company, and I, frankly, would like to see it remain listed on the boards here, not disappearing into uh, foreign hands. Well, I think the problem with that, Stephen, is if AGL is going to get anywhere near making the transition it needs to reduce emissions it's not going to make it as a public company because it just won't be able to find the cash to do that. So yeah. it's, it's, a del- it's a delicate balance. It's a delicate balance. Yeah, and I'd like to see these gen tailors get unbundled. I'm really un- uncomfortable with people being major power, uh, you know, wholesale producers and then uh, massive players in the poles, wires, gas distribution and marketing piece. I just think it's just that integration is too much market power and I think it's distorting some of the market decisions. So, frankly, I would rather see see a breakup uh, rather than, uh, you know, I mean, I guess this is partially a breakup because you've got two bidders who are carving it up, but uh, then you've got the foreign ownership piece, which I'm also not, not too much of a fan of. Right. Now, Lachlan is, uh, Lachlan is flabbergasted by all these articles in the paper projecting that Melbourne's population is going to double by 2050, and he's basically saying this is going to be unsustainable and the climate and pressure on infrastructure and, you know, is it true? Do we really think that uh, our cities are going to be this big in 2050? Now, Lachlan, I just want to say that that Melbourne uh, doubling by 2050, that's only 3% a year, mate. So it's just the power of compounding. I mean, you know, 3% population growth, 100,000, that's not that big. And that's just doing that for 27, 30 years. You know, that's that's almost doubling in 27 years. So it sounds like a big number. But, you know, and the other thing I'd say is that... Um, Think about our population is so low relative to the world. If you look at Ireland, Ireland's got 5.1 million people living in 84,000 square kilometres, whereas Tasmania's got 541,000 people living in 68,000 square kilometres. So Ireland is a quarter bigger than Tasmania. It's got nine times the population. So people who say the world's least densely populated country can't handle a bit of growth, I don't know. I just find it surprising. Fair enough. Here ends the rant. (laughs) Yes, well, I I think, uh, look, I'm not sure we'll quite get to double by 2050, Lachlan, but it's not impossible to imagine it. I I, I do wonder if 
we're going to be able to attract that level of immigration. Uh, I think the right around the world, every country is going to be hunting for these younger, skilled workers. I think Australia is going to have to work a bit harder than we might think to attract them, given that those climate issues and cost of living and some of that stuff. Oh, oh I disagree. Where it's the great lifestyle. I mean, we're the, one of the four biggest cities in the world, Melbourne, for foreign students, along with the Paris, London, and New York. That's the, the great story of Australia. Is we're basically selling, selling migration, selling, selling citizenship, and there will always be enormous demand to come here with the lifestyle, the, the Medicare, the great social safety net. I, I don't think there's any issue with Australia being able to grow as fast as we like from a population point of view. Yes, the challenge for great skills. Uh, in specific, particular areas, yes, I agree, it'll be competitive. But just that general, you know, do you want to live in Australia? I mean, it's just a, it's just a great sell. All right. yeah. I'm going to ask one from Jane here. She'd like to hear our thoughts on the current housing crisis. Uh, wondered how much of this is to blame on the rise of houses and apartments becoming short-term rentals. Uh, I would say very little, Jane. Um, there is a problem in some areas. Hobart's a good example. David Walsh who uh, built the Mona Gallery down there, has admitted that he's created a homeless problem because there's so many uh, places down there used for Airbnbs and short-term rentals. But I think that's quite a um, localised problem. I, I think generally this is a supply issue and our tax settings uh, encourage um, uh, people to buy investment properties, which reduces the number of um, properties available for for people to find houses and apartments. Uh, uh, anything yeah. there, Stephen? Uh, well, I'm against regulating this space because it's it's a great little learner for people in the gig economy. They can get more than just a regular rental. It adds to hotel supply. I mean, so when the Australian Open is on, we can get an extra, you know, 30,000, 40,000 people into Melbourne with all that uh, Airbnb capacity that comes into play. So I'm, I'm against, uh, you know, councils regulating or limiting. I know Mornington Peninsula now charges $311 a year if you want to have a, a short register for a short stay place down there. But overall, I, I don't think it's contributed that much and I'm against uh, clamping down on it uh, too heavily. Yeah. Now, um, Lucas is uh, is demanding, wants to know who is still spending. Oh, I, think this is, um, I think this comes back to something I said last week, Um Stephen, I, I, I suggested that uh, it was um, still sort of younger family spending and Lucas's view is it's, it's the baby boomers who have owned their homes for more than 10 years. They uh, don't have a lot of debt. They've got, they're, they're retired or semi-retired, so they've got plenty of time to spend. They can all dine out. Many of them have got investment properties. Uh, I, I guess my point is... I, I, I take Lucas's point, but those people don't have as much to spend on as sort of what I'd call young to middle-aged families. That they're not baby boomers aren't you know don't have big grocery bills because there's only a couple of people living at their house. They're empty nesters. That they're, they're, they're so so the bulk of the spending is done by the age groups between you know twenty five to fifty five. Um, yeah, and the boomers are tra the boomers are travelling more and eating out more yeah, after COVID, absolutely. and they've got the cash to do it. I think is his point as yeah, well. Yeah, but my my point is that everyone's still spending, including uh, and particularly people who are in that twenty five to forty five age group, because you need to keep spending to keep up with life. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. And also, in terms of why we haven't effectively sort of saying why haven't we gone into recession? Why aren't the, the increases in the interest rates biting harder? And, uh, and part of that is because only half of it's actually fed through. But don't forget that governments are still spending ridiculous amounts. I mean, everyone's still in deficit. Uh, effectively, fiscal stimulus is everywhere, and high commodity prices means that the farming sector is booming. So the farmers have got truckloads of cash to spend and the miners. You know, it's a it's a mining boom. So we've got the best terms of trade in the world at the moment and the, it's pretty hard to slow slow the economy down uh, when you've got that sort of setting. Yeah, L- Lucas does make the point that a couple of years out of the target band is not the end of the world. I think that's right, but only to a point. I mean, this is what uh, Phil Lowe and, and Jerome Powell in the, in the US are concerned about. A couple of years where inflation runs hot you start to get people expecting a wage increase to match inflation every year. You start to get businesses that feel that putting up their prices every year without fail is is par for the course. And then inflation is very hard to get on top of. So a couple of years outside the target band is okay as long as inflation is coming down. But this is what the, the unanchoring of inflation expectations is what Phil Lowe is very worried about, and, and and rightfully so, I reckon. Yeah, look, I agree. Now, look, uh, you've got five CEOs to interview, uh, James, on this busiest day of the reporting season, so we better wrap it up there. But thanks for listening to today's episode of The Money Cafe. Alan, post-COVID, we'll be back next week with senior <laughs> Chanticleer columnist James Thompson. I think you're the only one now, aren't oh, you, James? No, so seven... no, Tony's still around till the end of March. So the... Oh, that's right. And then you've got uh, someone else coming in as your deputy. So you go, you've gone from junior to senior. That's right. So yeah. now, but so send in your questions for us, for senior and Alan uh, to the money cafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until next week, I'm Stephen Main, contributor at Eureka, blah, blah, blah. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Financial Review. Talk to you soon. Thanks, everyone.